This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. Hey there, welcome back to another Owens Recovery Science Podcast. I'm Johnny Owens, your host today. I'm, I'm back on with Kyle Kimbrell. And then we have one of our great friends. We've been working with blood flow restriction for a long time out in Los Angeles, Heather Milligan, um, who, who runs or is founder, owner of Elite Ortho Sport Physical Therapy in Los Angeles. She has an amazing clinic. Um, I've been lucky enough to be there um, at her old clinic. And then I, I have, I've been at her new swanky, fancy um, <laughs> clinic as well. She has a, an amazing staff that we're friends with. We've done courses out there and, and she's kind of one of these clinical experts in blood flow restriction because she's just doing it so much and has been doing it for so long. So we really want to get her, her input um, of how she implemented it, how she works with, you know, Kyle, I, I know we just had this on an inner circle, someone saying my, my doctor still doesn't want me to do it. How do I talk to a doctor? And um, Heather really has these amazing relationships and has been able to do it on post-surgical as well as non-surgical people with a lot of success. So, as I said, she's the founder and owner of Elite Ortho Sport Physical Therapy um, in Los Angeles, California. She went to Texas Women's University um, in Dallas, Texas, and has also received her master's in business administration, um, which is a good thing to have when you own a, a, a rocking clinic like she does um, from UNLV. She's board certified specialist in orthopedics and board certified specialist in sports and also maintains a certificate in orthopedic manual therapy. So she's kind of checked all the outpatient um, orthopedic specialties that she would need. So Heather, thanks for coming on during this coronavirus quarantine time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool. Um, so kind of want to get your backstory first. So, so tell us a little bit of you know how you started in physical therapy, where you started, and why you decided to get into private practice. Um, and go from there yeah well I swore up and down I never wanted to be in private practice and I think you know back in the day when you work as a rehab tech I was fortunate to work with a family friend of ours that he had a great outpatient PT practice he actually had a few offices in Denver Colorado and I went to work with him when he went to work and I went home when he went home so I saw pretty early on what the hours are like for a private practice clinician, but I was fortunate, you know, he's super passionate, really good therapist. And so I thought, no way, man, <laughs> I don't know that I want to do this. So when I, I came out of school, I went to, to work for, you know, big national corporate chain, did all of that. And eventually, um, you know, I landed out in California and I think, was fortunate at that point in my career to get to start to work with um, the guys at Curl and Job and it was sort of inspired, I guess, re-inspired, so to speak. I think anytime you get the opportunity to work the bet with the best in any field, I think it's really motivating. And uh, so that was sort of like how I ended up about this way. And then ultimately, I think, you know, when dealing with the, the kind of population that I work with, it was more and more difficult to sort of operate that in a large corporate environment and ultimately started my own practice against what my whole plan was. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so now I've got this practice and it's crazy and 
We have 15 therapists uh, outside of myself and I uh, feel very, very fortunate, spoiled that we have, you know, great, great patients, great therapists and uh, great physicians that we get to work with. And you see the everyday kind of orthopedic patient. And then also, if you ever are at Heather's place, there's usually some really elite athletes as well. So you, you kind of see the best of the best from people in their professions, um, from pro athletes, uh, probably freaking movie stars and everything else yeah. out there. So you're kind of like one of these go-to practices in LA. When did you start Elite Ortho? 2000, started in 2013. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's gone by fast. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah. You're going to be yeah. hitting your, your tenure here pretty soon. Oh my soon. gosh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Once you that 10 year, it means you make it. You don't have to do anything anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Hands off at that point. No, yeah. no more worries. Hardly, yeah. Like I said, hardly, when I did especially my, especially when you're a control freak. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. Happen. Especially right now during this time, we're all like questioning sure. where we're going to be going. Yeah. And like yeah. I said, when I did my first course, it was at a facility that was still a nice size facility and you mm -hmm. outgrew that one and, and had to yeah. move into a, a larger space in LA. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, when was that course? That course was probably 2017. 17 or 16, yeah. yeah. I think it was 2017 yeah. because I took your course right. in, March, um, 2017. in 2016. Yep. And so then the following spring after I went was when I had you host the course yep. at our office. Yeah. And yeah, I, you know, I, when I first started hearing about blood flow restriction, it was through a couple of our patients and, and this was back five years ago and we happened to have like a couple you know pro athlete in football one in baseball that had left the facility to go see their teams and then came back and I'm hearing these like crazy stories so if you can imagine how this athlete is trying to describe to me yeah. yeah they're putting this thing on my leg and like my legs turning purple and <laughs> I'm like what what is going on here Right. And yeah. so I hear about this a little, like, again, a few times I'm like, okay, I, I don't know what they're talking about. So we got to look into it. And finally, by the time then your course rolled around there at Kyle's facility, yeah, I was like, I've had enough. I, that's it. <laughs> I'm like, this just sounds wacky. And so I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go see what this is all about. And I called Dr. Elitrash. I said, that's it. I'm going to this course. Um, I'm going to, I'll find out what this is all about and I'll let you know. Yeah. And so I signed up for the course and I, I remember sitting there and it's like two hours into the course and I'm like, Oh my God, this is like the real deal. This is crazy. This is so cool. And I was so, and so jazzed. And I was like, yeah, no, I, this is, this is legit. And so yeah, it was sold. I called, I called Dr. Alatrash. I was like, this is, this is really cool. I said, I really, this is a game changer. And, uh, I remember I, so I bought a unit and I think I used the unit like a week in the clinic and I ordered the second one because immediately that, you know, I remember the first case that I used it on and I was like, Oh yeah, no, we got to be on bilateral. This just, yeah. this one just isn't enough. And yeah. so that was sort of how, I initially, and I tell everybody, I was a complete doubter at the beginning, yeah. total doubter, but I was like, I'm not going to be a doubter until I really legit understand what 
what it is that I'm doubting. And then yeah. it was like, this makes complete sense. And then obviously, you know, as you use it in the facility and you see what the results are. Yeah. I, I think that's what's funny about buffer restriction. It, it is the thing that, you know, it's becoming more common now. So most people have a little bit of a clue, but in those mm -hmm. early days, like back when you were looking at it, you know, over a decade ago when I was mm -hmm. trying to describe it, you describe it to people and they're just like, what the hell are you talking about? Dude? Yeah. But then yeah. it seems like if you get about like, you know, they, they, they're like, what's your elevator pitch? And you try and describe this in like a minute or two minutes. And people are like, it's barbecue. And candy, uh, yeah. You're on crap. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, really exactly. And I'm always like, yeah. can you give me like 30 minutes? And I'll really tell you. And then, yes. and then it's usually like, you see people in the courses like, oh my God. Yeah. Like yeah. You start talking pathways and therapists yeah. are like, oh my God, especially not outpatients. They're like, not neuro pathways, right? Because I didn't want to go into neuro, right? <laughs> I forgot all of that. We don't, we don't go there. Yeah. We, we stick to, to physiology. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and just to put it out there, you know, we got a lot of international listeners and others. So Curlin Job is probably the most, one of the most elite orthopedic surgical centers in in our country um you know we've got these kind of like mega centers it's curlin job stephen philippon in vail rush in chicago um, hss in new york and, and kj kind of just controls all of that west coast and, and dr elatrosh is the maven the the kind of the main guy he's like team physician for freaking i think every pro team <laughs> west of the mississippi it seems like um and so you know that's the thing too like elatrosh was one of those guys that really, he seemed to really buy into it. You know, they, Arthrex had this like kind of secret society meeting one time in Florida with all the Arthrex like mm -hmm. big dog physicians and Elatrosh invited me out just to make sure that all the Arthrex physicians knew about this. Um, so it, it's pretty cool to have that kind of like, you know, top cover um, support for that. So Definitely. I think those guys too, I think part of what, and they, I think they do a good job of recognizing sort of the relationship that you need to have with the physical therapy community in yeah. order to make their work look even better than it is. Yeah. And so I think that's sort of, we've been fortunate to have that relationship where they respect and ask for the input from the physical therapy community, especially on things like this and, and work together you know, and on the research side of things to say, okay, how do we want to implement this? Yeah. especially in those early days as we were seeing some really good results, but it's a little scary if all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're throwing this out to the world and nobody knows really what to do with it. Right. Right. Yeah. No, and I, it's, it's, it's almost like a, you know, bad pun, but it's almost like a virus spread. You know, when, when the KJ guys are on board and they're telling people at conferences, yeah, we start buffalo restriction, you know, after surgeries, that, that really helps kind of spread the message throughout the whole orthopedic community. And, and I, I think that's what Elatrosh and Limpavosti and all those guys have really done. You know, mm -hmm. Kyle and I talked this week with um, Adam Cady, who's, who's one of the PAs over there at Curlin Job. And, yep. you know, he's, he kind of sends out all the referrals. And, and he was saying, you know, he's, he's, they're really not sending referrals out for their post-surgical patients if you're not doing blood flow restriction. In, in particular, yeah. if you haven't, been certified to do it right um and you're not mm -hmm. using proper equipment you know they, they really want to make sure people are using like a delphi system or, or a similar something that's that level so and yeah. that's that's obviously the way you probably help kind of steer that by educating them 
Yeah. Well, I think, you know, early on when you, you see sort of how this all evolved and when you're starting from a place where you hear about it and you're like, this is crazy. Um, I can't imagine like how this works to, wow, this really does work, but you're coming at it from a scientific place, which is what are the variables that I can control? And there's no device out there that you can control those variables, unlike the system. And when you're dealing with surgeons that understand what a tourniquet is and what that is because they use it in the OR and that now we're modified, that's been modified to use in the, in the clinic. I think that's sort of, that's been helpful. Um, because I think they understand sort of the, the dangers that can come along with that. If you have somebody who's just, you know, no offense, like the, you know, the Looney Tune crazy guys down there at Gold's Gym that are strapping stuff up on the, you know, you go out yeah. there and you're like, oh my God. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, one of those surgeons at a conference, you know, mentioned that to me too, you know, that he's very cognizant of the liability when he's writing and prescribing blood flow restriction. And he sends a patient there and then he's like, I don't like to think, know that I just gave up all control of what that person could be doing, you know, cause that it, it, I'm sending the person there and they're going to come after me if that person gets injured. So I think that yeah. liability is something we have to really think about. And I know the surgeons think about it. It's probably why we have so many that work with us <laughs> because yeah. it's the safety yeah. side. So for sure from a, um, a clinical standpoint, you're implementing it. Um, you know, throughout your, your practice, can you just kind of give us an idea of what, what diagnoses you're using it with kind of when you started, um, post-surgical things like that? Yeah, I think if I go back to, so we were this back in 2016, after I took the course, we started using it and, you know, I distinctly remember like a handful of those cases that we used it on really early on. And my practice in general, has a very high post-surgical population. I, you know, you're probably running 50% of my practice is post-surgical stuff. So you see a lot. And that very first case that I used was a professional basketball player that had a the uh, percutaneous tenotomy under ultrasound yeah. Yeah. and had a basically a quad tendon debridement had a lot of necrotic tissue calcifications and they did that procedure and did a BMAC injection drilled into the superior part of the patella to kind of stimulate some more growth factors. And we were seeing quite a few of those type procedures um, at the time. And they were challenging because they would do that procedure and they'd put the patient in a uh, leg immobilizer for four weeks, uh, partial weight bearing, and then you'd have to sort of rehab your way along. And you were looking at, without blood flow restriction, a 12-week sort of progression. Yeah, yeah. So this particular patient, we do that, and he like had a phenomenal, we were able to use it almost right out of the gate. And it really helped, number one, kind of take the edge off of sort of that endorphin level that an athlete is looking for that, that they have that sense of like, Oh my God, did I do something today? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, he did, he did really, really well with it. I think, um, we were fortunate to see, you know, with the physician at that time, they did serial ultrasounds at every follow-up visit. And I remember that it was the, it was like the 10 week mark or so. And, patient was doing well, girth, you know, quad girth is good, all of that stuff. And the, 
the physician does the ultrasound was like, oh my God, like I've never seen this. And he was talking about, he saw like a blood vessel into the tendon, like the healing process. And this is one of those guys that just, he, he's like as flat energy level as ever can be. And he was like amped up. And nice. so that was cool. Um, and he presented that, I know who you're talking about. And he presented that case at that same Arthrex Society meeting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know the player you're talking about, and I know the team he's with, and he's, he's a, like a BFR addict now. Um, totally. Yeah. And I, he's a, it's an interesting, I think, when you talk about longer term, and yeah. he is, he's totally bought in. And I, I know there's the debate in the tended world about, oh my God, we got it. You can't just do BFR only. And mm -hmm. I agree, you don't just do BFR only. Right, right. But I also think he's, you know, this has been a case where I've watched him over the last, you know, four years. And he does a mix of BFR with regular body weight training. Right. And I think that's, that's worked out really well for him. Yeah. Um, you know, the other... Shortly after that case, I think within a month of that case, we had a NHL player that we had fresh out of an Achilles tendon repair. And that particular case, I went back and I looked at it. He was playing in an NHL game by six months. Wow. That's awesome. And, you know, and, and these were the kinds, so this was sort of our, we were, we were fortunate right? Because these are some of our first experiences using it. Right. And, um, you know, you, we had like, you're applying it to some of the best population that you can imagine, right? Yeah. A professional athlete. So you're sort of starting with the best, you know, physical specimen that the you can. Is pretty and good. I, yeah. 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 <laughs> but it was at the same time, then we had a, she just turned 16 years old, ACL reconstruction, teller tendon. And it, you know, it was pretty popular in our market that as a clearance uh, milestone to return to sport, they were testing these guys um, in a motion analysis lab, I think down there at Motion Performance Institute, yeah. where you guys have done a course recently, yeah. and they would do isokinetic testing and all of these things. So I, you know, these, you know, 16-year-old girls with ACL tears are probably some of the toughest to, to rehab to try to get their quad back. Yep. And so we we're sort of familiar with looking at the results of these first tests that, you know, return to sport testing that we would do. So we had this girl, she had been using BFR from, you know, again, immediately post-op and she goes in there for her five month, like first shot at this to sort of baseline, see where we're at. And we get the results back and she's got a 2% quad deficit at five months. Wow. And I've been doing this a long wow. time yeah. and, wow. have, and have seen and have seen some professional athletes take that test that were like 20 something percent yeah. deficit. And I, yeah. so here's my, and then, so I thought, okay, well, is she smart enough to fake the test? I don't know. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't think so, but no. even like, you know, even her, her glute strength was only a 10% deficit at that point, which, yeah. you know, historically we just hadn't seen that kind of stuff. So for we us, know those guys over there that do the test. They're pretty hardcore. And, and, and what's cool about that is it's not you testing. So no, you had this no. you know, other outside source that you're, is blinded to the treatment, which, yeah. which makes it more valid, which is really cool. Yeah. 
So we, did, I think, how did that return to sport decision making go from that point, Heather? I mean, what, how did the, how did the surgeon respond? What, how did things move forward? Because certainly, I mean, we know current best evidence is like you got to give it at least nine months. Yeah, and so those things, we we sent her for the test, thinking like, okay, let's just see where we're at. It's almost like a we're not, we're definitely not sending them back at that point, but it's like, let's see where we're at. And you use it sort of as a motivator as well. And so that was great to see. And it told us, okay, we're on the right track for, from a strength perspective. And we, you know, said, well, we definitely need to keep doing that. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, motion wise, emotion analysis wise, she did well, but we ultimately didn't release her for probably, you know, another four or five months after that, because there wasn't a, re a need to, she was young, but right. she was performing well, but you know, we, especially with those younger ones, we like to protect them. But I think it definitely got the surgeon's attention. It got our attention because you're impressed when you see a professional athlete have an outcome like they have. But when you see a 16 year old girl, who's, you know, a volleyball girl. So she's yeah. already like, probably five, 10 legs up to her ears kind of a thing. And you're very little exercise that, history, historically yeah, exactly. resistance training in the gym. So you're kind of that first touch point for this person yeah. actually putting forth effort with resistance exercise. A lot of times in that population uh, yeah. and they've got to work really think, hard to get that muscle back. For sure. For sure. And I think, you know, when I, I looked at it, we see a lot of patients and you know, as a like a whole if i were to look at how many patient interactions with bfr have we had since we started using it and we're probably pretty close to 50,000 and so with that number you start to see little you pick up on little pearls and things and i think you know having been to several of the courses and hosted them and I think one of the big things I tell like my students that come through or new therapists that join is what I see a lot of times is people, they sort of vegetabilize and go brain dead when it comes to their clinical reasoning. And they think, oh, well, I have BFR. And so that's just going to fix my patient. And it's a, it's a disservice to the patient, but it also doesn't, you know, you're not utilizing BFR for what it could do. Right. You should. This is an added thing on top of your the right clinical decision making. What's your normal exercise progression? And then this is allowing you to do more. And so I think that was the first thing that I would I would tell them. And then the second thing is that most often I find that their therapists either aren't prescribing it enough. They're like, OK, I'm going to throw this cuff on them for one exercise. And they're sort of like half ass watching them do an exercise. And it's just not enough. It's not enough volume and it's not enough load. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know you guys have talked about this in the past. It's, this is a little bit of a religious experience when you first start doing BFR, right? <laughs> and it's not exactly <laughs> comfortable. Yeah. And sometimes you got to work your patient into that. But, you know, we try as much as we can is I want you to barely be able to finish the set. Yes. At the end, I want you to be wiped out. And if you're not wiped out, I don't want you to worry about not being able to finish because I'm either going to drop the weight down or I'm going to help you. I'd rather be in that scenario than for you to finish and say, I got gas in the tank. And that's yeah. a really mm -hmm. hard thing for people to push themselves to. Right. But that's a requirement 
in my mind on the clinicians that are applying it, that's what you need to be doing. Yeah, I've, I've said a lot of times, if you take someone to that point, uh, what do you have to do to document the skill in your chart? I mean, that's our requirement, right? That, you know, that whatever this person is receiving, it required skill. Well, taking somebody to that point with exercise, that requires mm -hmm. skill. You don't just get yep. to phone that in and, and pass it off yep. to, to anyone. It, it takes a yep. bit of effort on your part to really kind of figure out how do I get this particular person to work that hard? It's not you're easy you're not just like throwing the kitchen sink at them like, okay, I'm going to do no. 90 million different goofy exercises. You know, it's yes. like, this is very specific. And, and we always kind of get down these wormholes of what the physiology and the science shows that you're also adding on to that. Um, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, that's, that's the key. You know, and that, that still blows my mind. Like you said, people, sometimes they're like, well, I'm kind of seeing results, kind of not. And I remember I talked with some guys at a pro team and, and they, weren't, they weren't even progressing load. You know, yeah. it's like, it's, no, it's not like you, you do nothing barely and you, as long as you put a tourniquet on, you get, you know, it's going to work. Um, or you put some goofy thing on, you do it for 40 minutes and you're magically like, oh my God, my growth hormone went up. Everything's going to be healed. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. And we've, we've seen, I, you know, I, there are some that stick out in my mind where they've been pulled out of another facility and sent over and they're like, Oh yeah, I've been doing BFR. And I'm like, well, let's see how you've been doing BFR. And it's exactly <laughs> what you're describing, right? Yeah. They were laying on the table doing straight leg raises and they're eight months out from an ACL reconstruction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like, that's just not, it's not going to cut it. And I think, you know, you have to, again, back to that clinical reasoning and how do you set up the program? You know, these guys that are advanced to body weight exercises and we're still using some BFR stuff is so then maybe they do all their BFR at the end. I have some that we do BFR early on as more of a, like with quad sets or short arc quad or something like that. That's more of a, what I would call an activation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then they go into their body weight stuff and maybe they're running on the alter G and then we're doing what we would call like burnout stuff at the end. We're doing their more difficult stuff at the beginning, but that's sort of, again, like Kyle's talking about that clinical skill. What's my decision-making? How am I developing this program? Yeah. Not yeah. just handing somebody a sheet of exercises and saying, yeah, here's your yeah. three sets of 10. Taking a very injured limb to failure. I mean, that's a, that's a real yeah. talent and understanding and you got to do that a new way on Wednesdays somehow. And then also, mm -hmm. yeah, you get these people from other clinics. It's, we do this with, we see this with teams all the time that might've been using some like, oh yeah, they use this pump up thing. And then they're like, I've been doing BFR. And then you actually get them on, you know, one of these microprocess tourniquets and they're like, holy hell, this is completely yeah. different. So yes, when you actually get totally. these occlusion pressures and then maintains it, it it's mm -hmm. a whole nother level. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Are you, are you doing it on the, some of your elderly patients as well, or mostly? The yeah, we now? see, no, with the full, the full gamut. Um, we do have some older population trying to think we've had some in their eighties, right. Yeah. That have done it. I think we see a, we see a pretty significant number of upper extremity, like rotator cuff tendinopathy, like irreparable cuff stuff yeah. or big cuff tears. Um, so it's not just something we use for lower extremity. We definitely use it a lot for upper extremity. Uh, and we've seen really good results. I think from the, if you look at the upper extremity sort of spectrum, you've got what I would call the 
non-invasive tendon debridement elbow stuff, similar to like my quad tendon guy I described that have had some sort of biologic injection with a 10X procedure. Those do really, really well, those yeah. elbows. And so we've seen really good results on that. That's sort of a standard of care in our practice. And then the rotator cuff guys, they, they do well as well. I think that, you know, anecdotally what we've done is there have been times where we maybe delayed using it on the operative arm and used it on the other arm while we were waiting. Right. And usually that instance that I found where we've delayed on the operative arm is I have someone who had a biceps tenodesis and they're a little sensitive in the area where you would place the cuff. And I had, you know, this lady who's maybe a hundred, a hundred pounds soaking wet, you know, just really, really thin. And it's like, okay, we're gonna have to do this on the other arm for a while till this, we get a little further out. And, but they've done well. And I, you know, the other thing that we've talked about with shoulder is during a lot of our rotator cuff patients, even non-op stuff, just regular impingement type thing is they tend to be overactive in their biceps when they're doing their cuff exercises. And I know it's just what we've seen is they're getting the benefit of having the cuff on, but it seems like it's potentially inhibiting their bicep while they're doing their cuff exercises, because now all of a sudden, you know, it's that they really feel their rotator cuff working, the biceps is inhibited. And and so we get a little bit of that added benefit, but that's just, you know, no, I think research based, but no, that's super interesting. Jeremy Lenicky oil miss, you know, he, he showed some work that the muscle directly under the cuff does get fatigued and kind of can get shut down a little bit quicker. Um, so that's mm-hmm. kind of fascinating to think about for those, cause we're all are like, God dang, I wish this guy would stop using his biceps. He's just, he's just pissing yeah. his thing off more, um, be it a slap lesion or a bicep yep. tenodesis or you know, tenodesis or tenonopathy that, yeah, if it, if it makes the biceps not activate fatigue a little bit, that, that's really cool to see it go that direction. And that's an interesting yeah. point on these older masses. I know, I know, I think Louis from El Paso was at that course with you yep. at your place. Uh, was, right up yeah. on was a while back, but yeah, he had a, I think it was a 92 year old massive cuff repair. Oh, no, no, massive, non-operable, massive tear that he did it on. You know, he's like, hey, how do you feel about me doing it on a 92 year old? I was like, <laughs> just tell me how it goes, man. I'm not going to say go for it. You know, like, oh, um, <laughs> I deal with young service members, um, but he's got this amazing, like before and afters, the guy's arm elevated and, and he's like, the docs think it's like voodoo or something. It was really weird. And it wasn't like this, like that day it elevated, but he did it for weeks. That's yeah. what's interesting. These cuffs like that, the fatty infiltrate is the big, big problem. Yes. Um, and so yes. we haven't really had a solution for fatty infiltrate. Now, Amy, Amy Seitz over at Northwestern University, she put out a really interesting paper that showed that you don't actually get more fatty infiltrate, it looks like, over time. You mm-hmm. actually atrophy the muscle, so the fatty infiltrate index gets higher. So you have Got a it. bunch of fat, and you have a lot of muscle, but the muscle atrophy, so then you have more fat-to-muscle ratio. Mm-hmm. And so her study she's doing with BFR, um, with Illinois Bone and Joint, is, is just doing it on those kind of cuffs that are non-ops and going to see how to infiltrate, which can set them up for success or even set them up for success if they have to have surgery. For Um, sure. For sure. That's what I love is those kind of like, now we're changing the way we're doing rehab. It's like, 
we're doing this to increase muscle volume, to reduce the fatty infiltrate index, to make you a, maybe yep. a better surgical outcome or whatever, which is not the way we've always kind of looked at rehab. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you see it with the the quad and your cuff patients. And one of the things like when I talk to my therapist is I think a lot of times they forget that one of the best things you get out of this is the patient actually feels what it feels like to make that muscle work. Right. When you have somebody who's had quad inhibition and issues for years and all of a sudden you put the tourniquet on them and you have that increased muscle fiber recruitment, all of a sudden they feel something that they've never felt before. I know. Right. And I think while it's, again, the little bit of a religious experience, however, it's, it's welcomed. I think it's good for those guys to feel that. Yeah. It's like the light switch, you know, it just goes Mm -hmm. on and they're like, wow, that's awesome to finally feel that. And that, that's, you know, and that's the thing too, like seeing 50,000 or so BFR sessions, um, that's, yeah. you know, that's where we're getting now is like, as a clinician, you're seeing more than we see as researchers, you know, yeah. you, you yeah. do like maybe 20 studies with, you know, 10 subjects, um, yeah. you're, you're, yeah. you're seeing way more. So you're going to pick up trends and, and pick up safety data. Yeah. Well. Well, and it's interesting, you know, I listened when you guys were talking about the you know, risk of blood clot and things. And because initially going back to that, oh my God, this is wacky. What are we doing? Yeah. And that your first, your first inclination is blood clots and mm-hmm. post-surgical and oh my God. And, you know, we've not had an adverse event. Knock yeah. on wood. Knock right? on wood. Yeah, knock, knock on, on wood. wood. <laughs> um, you know, and we have had, we, you know, there's one, one case that we had and he, he was out there about his case and he had a DVT after his surgery. So he was a professional bodybuilder, tore his bicep, rehabbing for the bicep, gets injured, tears his quad tendon and re-tears the bicep. And then because of a long extended flight after the injury of tearing his quad post-operatively ends up with a DVT. It turned out it was pretty superficial, but Mm -hmm. that was like one of the big crises of that case was like, my God, what are we going to be able to implement this? It was like, we were, everybody was just crushed because we wanted to be able to implement BFR. And it turned out that we did end up going back to use it. And we worked with the, you know, the orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Katie's the PA for, and so what we were doing is working with the hematologist who was following the patient saying, okay, we're, he's on, uh, blood thinners, what have you We're you know, it wasn't, it turned out it was pretty superficial. And mm-hmm. so once they were cleared there and they were ultimately going to clear him to then have his bicep revised. Yeah. And so then once we hit that milestone, everybody was like, okay, we, we feel like we're in the clear. We'll monitor it. We didn't have any problems. Um, He documented that that. he has like an actual like movie on it. Right. Uh huh. I think I saw some video. He's at your facility doing blood flow restriction. Yeah. 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 Those guys are, they're tough to control. So that was, uh, (laughs) I was like, Oh my God, if we can't use BFR, I have no idea what this guy's going to do on his own. This guy's going to be doing quad sets in your clinic and squats at the gym. Right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I know that was with a big pro athlete that had a pretty big back surgery. You know, they were like, one thing we just loved about it is he could do this and just do light squats. 
and we knew that that would gas him enough that he wouldn't go off to the gym yep. later because he, he felt like he was doing something. So, yeah, you better wear him out with you. Other than yeah. They're going to figure out some way to do some it on way. their own, and it's probably not going to be PT approved. Yeah. And I think and, that gets buy-in too. You know, somebody comes in and they work really hard. They, they're like, wow, these, I, really, I really got my money's worth today. Like, yeah. I, I know yeah. I did something where too often I think people leave a clinic and, and they're kind of like, yeah, I don't know if that did anything or not. Come back on Wednesday. Uh, yeah. 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 Especially if that population that is used to having that switch turned on of like the endorphins of like really working out yeah. and they're sort of like that high type A energy driven personality. Yeah. Are you using it as an aerobic component as well, like yes. on the bike or treadmill? Good. good. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So we do the bike protocol. So we'll do that early on. I've had some, we'll do it with an elliptical trainer as well. Yeah. So, you know, for instance, like on, on maybe one of our, like a total program on a, you know, post-op ACL or hip or something like this is, you know, they'll do they'll do some body weight strength component. They'll do some BFR strength some stuff. And then we'll do BFR with their cardio okay. as well. Good. And so it's sort of like a all encompassing. Yeah. Aerobic yeah. component yeah. as well. As exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. And what I, what I love too, not only are you a accomplished PT running a business, um, very high-end clinic, um, but you're also finding time to start looking at doing some research with this as well, um, mm -hmm. which a lot of people, I get this question all the time from clinicians, like, how can I start doing research? And I'm like, let's talk about your bandwidth right now, because I'm oh, not sure man. if you have that available, but you've been able to do it. So you, yeah. had, a, you had a really cool paper come out with the Curlin Job guys. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we've talked about it on our podcast before, but yeah. I don't know if you want to discuss it or I can kind of highlight the. Program. You can you can highlight it. Yeah. You're probably it's probably fresher in your mind. Yeah. As, you know, and, and we talked about two years it. ago now. Yeah, that's, that's what's funny with research. We talked about it like, yeah. hey, my new paper that I don't even remember I wrote two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> And by the way, I collected data three years ago. Every, everybody mm -hmm. wants to know all the details then. And you're like, man, that's, that's like, down the road. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, basically that big question. And so much of the BFR research is like at a physiological lab. It's like, okay, they did yeah. leg extension or they said bicep yeah. curls. And yeah. so I know we're always like, well, what about the rehab stuff that yeah. we really apply this with? Hip abduction, hip extension, mm -hmm. straight leg raise, all that sort of stuff. So you took what we've got to point out, it was healthies, you know, this wasn't a, it was healthies. Yep. Um, and looked at doing the rehabby kind of Jane Fonda exercises that yep. bore the hell out of patients. But we, uh -huh. when you put a, a cuff on, it's completely different. Um, yes. And, and showed hypertrophy in the thigh and the lower leg in the BFR mm -hmm. cohort, not in, yep. the, in the control, 30% of a one rep max. Which, uh -huh. you can, which is, you can estimate that in a healthy population yep. much easier than the clinical population, we'll say that. Yep. But then also saw these strength changes um, in all those basic exercise movements. So yep. hip extension got stronger, which was proximal. Hip abduction got stronger, which is proximal. Single leg mm -hmm. heel raises got stronger. Quad got stronger. So, um, we you know, and then you did the the control the 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 groups also did the exercises on the opposite limb 
with or without yes. a tourniquet on based on how they're randomized. And you saw a yep. contralateral effect as well, or a crossover yes. effect. Yes. So that's cool yeah. because you, you know what, what it did, and, and now you'll get to be cited by me in these studies. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we have a, uh, a hip labral study going on right now at Rush in, in Chicago. We have a total mm -hmm. hip study going on in, with Aptos Ortho Park in Germany. And, and we can say, well, yeah, looking at least, you know, in a healthy model, it looks like these exercises can get the, the proximal hip musculature stronger. And other yeah. studies, you know, Dr. Abe's study showed that as well. Um, so we've seen this um, is, is potential. So it's pretty cool to see, see that laid out. And, and now we get to apply it and say, okay, does this work in a clinical population? And then you, yeah. you, 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 it's not published yet. I think you said it's about to come out an upper extremity yep. version of that. Yeah, so basically same format, but for upper extremity where, you know, they had a tourniquet on one arm if they were in the tourniquet group, they did the exercises on both arms and similar effects, good um, increase in girth and strength below and above the cuff, um, awesome. as well as contralateral if, you know, so, um, suggesting potential systemic effect. Um, I think, you know, the things that I remember as we were, we were doing this I really was questioning in my mind. I thought, yeah, you know, I, this is going to be interesting. Two days a week doing a tourniquet. Yeah, and we'll point right? that out. That's the big question. Everyone's like, how, you know, clinically, I can't do this daily, like the pro guys. Exactly. So exactly. twice a week. I love that you chose that because most of my clinical trials are two times a week. Yeah. And it was twice a week and they didn't change. There was no other outside you know, you're not doing additional stuff outside that this is your two days a week that you're doing this stuff with the BFR. And I, I uh -huh. you know, you're supposed <laughs> to just, just do the research, right? Yeah. See what we'll happens. See what happens. So yeah. it was a, it was a pleasant surprise for sure. And, and the upper extremity one is coming out in what journal? Do you remember? Uh, journal of shoulder and elbow. Okay. So an orthopedic surgeon journal. Cool. Yeah. Cool. And that, that should be coming out soon. So we'll, we'll, we'll highlight that for sure in a podcast. And it sounds like it goes all right along with Brad Lambert's shoulder study, um, which found the same results. So you're not on an island, you know, another study that's going to be coming out basically did the same protocol and found the same results, which is yeah. really cool. And then again, here's how the Heather tentacles spread, you know, Eric Bowman, who was the primary surgeon that was the author on it. Yes. Um, he was at Curlin Job. And then he yep. went down to Vanderbilt and I met him at a conference and he said, you know, he started talking to me about, Hey, I was on this paper and now Vanderbilt is doing research with us um, since he's down there and also our, our friend Dan Stinner. So I was able then to recruit, we recruited Vanderbilt under our femur fracture trial and, mm -hmm. and Eric's got all the plans. So, so keep yeah, going. He was, yeah, no, he was great. He, uh, he was able to present too at uh, AOSSM this AOSSM. last year as well, yeah. which was yeah. nice to see that uh, be included yeah. uh, when, in the presentation. So Yeah, he and I both presented AOSSM. So to have mm -hmm. two, rehab got, two rehab studies presented at AOSSM is like a, a big win, you know, when the orthopedic yeah. surgeons just want to hear about the new, the new arthritic banker. Yeah, I've, I've been going for like the last 11 years and there's not many no. rehab studies I've seen there. No, it's awesome. Do you have any other studies that y'all are, are engaging in? Or I know Orr was talking about some orthobiologic stuff. Um, and, yeah. You know, he was talking about all these residents. He wanted them to do studies. Yeah, there was one and I haven't looked at the 
we haven't gotten the results back together yet, but we did do one that was um, some BFR with core training and looking at there, if there's a transfer effect and what it would be on like core strength. Uh, that's one that we haven't sifted That'll, through all the data yet. Um, nice. The other one is we're looking at maybe doing a retrospective review on a lot of these Achilles tendons cases and comparing yeah. them to whether we use BFR or not, because we, you know, with the number of cases that we've seen in our facility compared to outside of our facility, is there something that we can take a look at there? Um, for Achilles that's repairs. All, yeah, for Achilles yeah. repairs. And um, I think what that have, that's always seen, a challenge. Mm -hmm. So what have y'all seen just anecdotally, Heather, with your Achilles repairs? It's a question we get a lot. Um, yeah. And I mean, I have my own thoughts, but what, do you, what have you guys really been seeing? It's like, to me, on an Achilles repair, it's a godsend. It really is. I mean, when you're looking at, if you have the ability to get these guys early on, and you're doing like a self-swelling protocol, and you're decreasing the atrophy. I mean, I, when I went back and I looked at that one, I mean, we were at 15 weeks post Achilles repair. I've got a guy whose calf girth is 92% of what the other side was. And that's like unheard of. Right. If you've been doing this for a while, like, you know, hallelujah, when you can get them to do a single yeah. leg heel raise right. at any certain time. So, <laughs> and so we, I think on Achilles, it's definitely been um, well received yeah. and we're seeing good strength gains and what have you. I think what we've used, we're fortunate we have an alter G. And so one of the things that we would do to sort of quantify how much when they can do a heel raise is we put them in the alter G and have them just stand in there and put the percentage of body weight that they're at when they can Perfect. do a full heel raise so yeah. that we can sort of objectify that. I think that's I that. what, when you start looking at the yeah. retrospective stuff on Achilles yeah. and rehab, I mean, notoriously PTs, I I'll be the first one to say my documentation sucks. Um, yeah. But, but, <laughs> but if you're measuring like, things like that, that are reproducible, yeah. you know, you have something to yeah. kind of anchor, you know, to be able to tell and, and, and scale that you can kind of mm -hmm. gradually progress. Now you can see, Hey, this person is actually, doing something. And I think that's a, a piece that PTs and probably athletic trainers as well miss a lot is they don't have certain things that they're looking at and ways to regress and progress them to really be able to tell, all right, this yeah. person is getting better. I mean, it's nice to have a biodex and various other things yeah. where you can really truly measure, but there's yeah. plenty of other things that you can use. Like, I mean, an alter G, you can go in 1% increments of body weight. That's yeah, that's awesome. I, I love that. It's almost like we should put a video of how to do that. You know, mm -hmm. I was part yeah. of a, a, a fasciotomy trial um, out of Mayo years ago. And just trying to validate a good measure of calf strength was next. There was zero, zero yeah. validation out there. The biodex yeah. very sloppy, big coefficients of errors with mm -hmm. it. And, and, you know, unless you just use a really well-powered biomechanical lab, um, it's very, very hard clinically to measure calf strength. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So the biodex model is great. I mean, the biodex, the alter G model is great. You know, if you can control their lean forward or, or you know, they're not using their hands to push mm -hmm. off or whatever. So and yeah. you have that data, um, that you can retrospectively gather on those. So, yeah. So, and I think the challenge we have is probably not everyone has been consistently documenting. And so yeah. we're trying to go through now and say, okay, here's our like 
so that we can continue to look at this kind of stuff in the future is here's what our standard basic measurements we want to be able to get on everyone yeah. moving forward so that you can gather that stuff. You know, uh, and kind of talking more about the Achilles, one of the big questions that, that came up in discussions with the surgeon is when would you implement this? And are there yeah. issues with the scars and things like that? And I yeah. think we've not had any adverse effects with incisions. And I think, you know, we've had some that start pretty aggressively, depending on the way they look, that might be three, four days afterwards. However, maybe we adjust the pressure, but that's where sort of that clinical judgment and having done this for a while, um, you know, the Achilles, a lot of times they are in one particular surgeon that we work with a lot. He's got them hunkered down in a cast that nobody's getting to that ankle for probably 10 to 12, maybe 14 days. And so just by that alone, you're probably not starting until 14 days after anyways. And at that point, I never usually have many concerns on the incision. Yeah. I I think that's a key point. You know, we, we did a lot with Achilles um, and we put a retrospective paper out. It was like two or three cases, but, um, and they were more chronic, but, but we, we really started to see is if we could tip, that dial back to more acutely within the first two weeks, get them started. Cause it really yeah. seemed like if we waited past that six week protective phase, it was, it was, it was hard to get it back. And yeah. then we're seeing these like kind of terrible adaptive changes that happen to the muscle when you're in disuse and maybe that played a role in it. So I think the success with Achilles is probably going to be the acuity of getting it on. And, For sure. We, now we do it so much, you know, I can't tell you how many workers comp, professional claims we've processed for Achilles um, that the teams have really kind of bought in. So let's get it started right after surgery. Um, Mm -hmm. So we'll see Mark Dracos up at HSS. He's their foot and ankle guy. He's got an Achilles trial going on right now. Um, So hopefully he'll have some data for us soon. So we, we can kind of see where it teases out. So. Right. Cool. Man, Heather, any other. I would say. Yeah, no, one other thing I think that I, I hear a lot in the private practice section, and this sort of goes back to what type of de- device that you decide to use. And I think, you know, for us, people will say, oh, well, the cost. And, and I think you have to, the way that I approached it, and everybody has their own way of how they want to do this. Um, for me, it was sort of like the decision that you go through when you decide to have an alter G in your facility, right? It's an investment. Do you, do you think you're going to have a cash based product line around this? And I, there was never in my mind, I thought, I don't have time for that. Maybe that's a wrong decision, but that was sort of my approach was that, um, I'm doing this and I'm bringing this into my facility because I feel like my patients, the outcomes with my patients are going to be better. And that, that my patients getting better and having a better outcome is worth more in the long run than trying to screw around and say, oh, I'm just going to use it for this special population that's willing to pay for it and what have you. And it's a decision everybody has to make. But I think you, you know, for me, that's how I've implemented it in my facility. And I'm not all cash based. I take insurance. And not all insurance, but I take some insurance that doesn't pay very much money, right? But that's my decision. And I, there's a way to get it done in my opinion. And I think for me, it was never worth 
sacrificing a product that wasn't necessarily going to work, right? Or that I couldn't control the variables wasn't worth the risk, right? If you're going to do this, then you need to do it and you figure it out, you know, financially and how you, how you run your facility. So, um, but yeah, I've never, we've never set it up as a cash-based product line. Could you? Yeah. But I, I just, I think I look at it more as a, this is what we do, a standard of care and a way that we deliver. And I think, you know, we've got a busy facility and a lot of therapists and we have six units in the facility. And I think you just made a lot of people very jealous by saying that, (laughs) but we've, you know, we worked our way up to that, you know, and I think, um, you know, we've been fortunate and I think it's possible to do it, but you have to make the, you've got to figure it out. Each business owner has to figure it out, make the decisions, but it's possible to do it. I think the tough thing for PT businesses too, is that yearly your cost on equipment is pretty small, right? I mean, you don't, you're not spending a ton of money on exercise equipment each year. You have some upfront costs to get going, but then year over year, that kind of levels out and you're not really spending a ton. I mean, maybe run some TheraBand and replacing yeah. some cuff weights here and there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, good grief, the, the practice I was in, you know, the, we had the same cuff weights for the, the entire 15 years I was there. <laughs> I was there, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. I mean, at some point you replace them with those goofy ones with the buckles. I hate that person that developed those cuff weights with the buckles and you got to like wind it back and forth. Like, I don't know who that person was, but they were clearly uh, Velcro. Leave it with yeah, the Velcro with the pea yeah, green and the rest and the old school seventies yeah. colors. Just seriously. Yeah. Don't change the colors. I don't have the baby poop Brown three pound cuff weight. <laughs> like it's, these are requirements of any quality rehab facility. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's uh I just know having been in the rehab world, sort of the, the way that, you know, the more, more expensive pieces of equipment, the, their usual go-to of how to sell it is like, well, you can do this as cash based and, and what have you. And it's like, listen, I, there are some people that are really good at that game. I, I'm sticking to my lane and what I'm good at, which is orthopedics and post-surgical stuff and rehab and we'll build the insurance. And I have some that, that pay cash and I'm not interested in, yeah. trying to justify purchasing it by doing that we're just we're going to do good, good care outcomes, good outcomes exactly team. yeah and obviously now you've got the biggest orthopedic group in la that that wants to just continue feeding you um because of your outcomes not just from buffalo restriction but from everything else yeah. but yeah i think you differentiated yourself early on in la with buffalo restriction is kind of one of the power centers and i always you know when these teams reach out like who do you have in la <laughs> like all right, here's yeah. my list. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. You guys have been doing it. They, they probably know it better than I do now. So cool. Yeah. Well, thanks, Heather. That was awesome You're stuff. Welcome. I miss you. I was going to see you guys, um, a, what, a week ago, Kyle, I think. I was supposed yeah. to be out at USC. So, yeah. Uh, oh, man. We got yeah, shut we'll, down. We'll reschedule and we'll, we'll all yeah. go hang out and, and do, a, do a happy hour. These virtual awesome. happy hours are bullshit. Uh, yeah, it doesn't quite. Doesn't no, quite cut doesn't it. Translate. I know. Not the same. Cool. Well, thanks, Heather. Not Stay safe. All right. Great seeing yeah. you guys. Hopefully, your practice, thanks. we didn't really go into it, but the COVID thing, I know it slowed yeah. you down a, a lot. Yeah. You're still doing some, but not as much. And yeah. hopefully, we all get we'll past be, this fast. And yeah, we'll be all right on the other side. Yep. Cool. Well, have a fun Friday night. We'll talk soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks Heather. Heather. Bye. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.